you're going to stay with us, let's come to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Rainier, I think you got the remote. If you want to go ahead and turn the TV off, you can here. Is this okay if we turn this off? Is that all right? Oh, good. Okay. All right, we're in Daniel chapter 9, and uh, we're going to pick it up today in verse 11. We're overlapping just slightly with last week's uh, lesson. Daniel chapter 9. And let me... This might be a decent time to kind of give you an announcement for what to expect moving forward with these Sunday school lessons. As you know, we've been going through the book of Daniel verse by verse, and um, we are approaching, at the end of Daniel 9, you get some of the most um, potent verses, some of the more powerful verses about uh, prophetical events moving forward, the timing of these things, what we call the tribulation time. By the end of the chapter, we're going to see where we get the idea that the tribulation is seven years long. All of that is explained. It's it's deep stuff. We're going to take our time and work through that. But what I'm going to do, by the grace of God, is is kind of take the off-ramp. So we're in the book of Daniel, and we're covering this stuff. But it's been a while since I've done any sort of series of teaching on prophecy just by itself. So I've dealt with it as we've gone through the book. But this gives me a natural, let's say, diving off spot. To, to delve into some of these other things. And Thursday night, we had a really good time with the q and I appreciate everybody with the questions that they brought. Uh, but it, it's also a good indicator that it's time to maybe deal with that again. If you've been in the church for a while, you know that dealing with prophetical issues and explaining that, no new thing. We, we've dealt with this on many occasions. But every three, four, five years, you get more and more new people in the church, new faces, and people that maybe haven't heard these things. So for you guys that have been around a while... It'll be review, but for the newer folks, this hopefully will be helpful and maybe put some things in their proper place. Um, but we'll, we'll deal with that as we go through the chapter. All right, so chapter 9, verse number 13, or verse 11, I'm sorry, we'll read down to 13. Chapter 9, verse 11. He says, Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might, uh, might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Remember, we're in the middle of Daniel's confession. And he, on behalf, he is speaking on behalf of the nation, taking full responsibility for all the bad that's going on. It's our fault, God. You've done nothing wrong. You should punish us for what we've done. Verse 12, and he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us. By bringing upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. Uh, We talked about that last week as well, just briefly, that God expects more from his people. We'll talk about that a little bit more as the passage continues. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. That's where the confusion of face came from. We talked about that last week as well. All this evil is coming upon them, but they should have known that it was coming. It was written in the law of Moses. Daniel, being a student of the Word of God, says everything you said would happen is happening. And, and because it's written in the law, we know why it's happening. Guys, I, I get it. When bad things happen, it's natural to say, why? My God, my God, 
why hast thou forsaken me? It's a legitimate question. Even Jesus posed that question. So don't feel bad for asking why. Just be patient enough to get the answer. Because the answer, if you search the scriptures, you're, you're going to find an answer. And if, if the answer to your particular scenario is very specific, God will at least give you some, some structure, some guidance, and narrow it down a bit through his word. And at least you can check certain things off the list. It wasn't this. God's not punishing me for that. And then you would be able to narrow it down to say, God must be doing something else in my life. And God would deal with you as an individual to say, this is why I'm allowing these things to go on. But for Israel's situation, it was written in the law. And now that it's happening, a bunch of the Israelites are standing around going, I don't get it. But why? But it was written. And I think the same thing happens today with a lot of God's people, right? Been in church their whole life. Something goes on, they go, I don't get it, but why? But God said, I've, I've told you how to live. You're living contrary to it because you're not paying attention to what I've written. You're not even spending time in the Word. I want to show you what is Daniel referring to when he says, it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Come to Leviticus chapter 26. And let's see what he's referring to here. Leviticus 26. No doubt you have this chapter memorized. Leviticus 26, very popular chapter, but let's look at it anyway. Leviticus 26, verse 27. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture this morning. Seems fitting, right? This is Bible study hour, so let's, let's get as much of that in as we can. Leviticus 26 and verse 27. Throughout this chapter, God is telling Israel, if you disobey, this is how I'm going to punish you. Bam, 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 bam. Okay, and if that doesn't get your attention, then seven other things. Bam, bam. And if that doesn't get your attention, seven other things. Then he just keeps piling it on. Verse 27. And if you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. Do you see that God is reactionary? You might want to mark that down. There's a whole lot of theology in this country. It says God doesn't react to anything. Yes, he does. That doesn't take away from his sovereignty. That doesn't take away from his omnipotence or omniscience. But God says, if you're going to walk like this, then I'm going to do that. He says in verse 28, I will walk contrary. Then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons. Oh, my. And the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. Things can get bad. I mean... Folks, you haven't seen it this bad, right? But that's what happened. Have you read 2 Kings chapter 6, chapter 7? That's what happened. They did. Verse 30, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. Let that sink in for a second. That's not hate. That's abhor. That's hate that drank a Red Bull. <laughs> that's a lot of hate. Verse 31, and I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation, and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. So you're going to come to the temple and offer up a sacrifice and put the incense on it, and God will say, oh, that's, that's nasty. <laughs> he won't even smell it. He, he won't accept the religious rigmarole. Verse 32, and I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. 
And they were. You can read 2 Chronicles 35 and 36. Even the enemies were marching in to the land of Israel going, what did you guys do? Man, you made your God angry. Because your God told us to come and destroy you. Your God told us to do it. I mean, they were astonished. Do you realize this is 900 years before Nebuchadnezzar did it? And it's spot on. This is exactly what happened. Verse 34, then shall the land enjoy her what? Sabbaths, as long as it lieth desolate, and ye shall be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land what? Rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. All right, there's what, there was a law in another place in the book of Le- Leviticus. The Jews, as farmers, right, halabura, every seventh year, they were not allowed to farm the land. They had to let it rest. And, and God would tell them, I will bless you abundantly in the sixth year so that you'll have enough to get you through not only the seventh year, but even the eighth year, up to the eighth year. So let it rest on year seven and then take it back up on year eight. Let the land rest. Okay? I just want to get that in your mind. Verse 35, as long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. So he says, as long as you were in the land, you didn't let the land rest. Now this is before they even got into the land. God said, but I'm going to, the way I'm going to punish you is by kicking you out of your land so that your land can finally get some rest. It'd be the same as telling anybody here today, listen, you work too much. You're constantly working. You're not being mindful. You're not taking any time to rest and worship God. So I'm going to kick you out of your house. (laughs) Let your house rest. I'm going to kick you out of your job. Let your job rest. Do you see how this would immediately hit home? Okay. I I saw some of you going, oh, man, okay. That got personal quick. Verse 36, and upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. So that's Israel there in the land of Babylon. And the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them. That's PTSD. And they shall, it is. And they shall flee and fleeing from a sword, as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall as when none pursueth. They're just tripping over themselves, scared to death over nothing. Little, you know, little cricket jumped up. Ah! You know, one of those things. Easy, man, easy. Calm down. Verse 37, and they shall fall one upon another, as it were before a sword, when none pursueth, and ye shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And ye shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. That is exactly what happened to Israel. They went to Assyria. The the Jews down in Judah went to Babylon, and that's what happened to them. He says, and also the iniquities of their fathers shall, in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. If they shall confess their iniquity. Ah, there's Daniel. There's Daniel. Daniel knew his Bible. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, which their Uh, with their trespass, which they trespass against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, there's Daniel, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, there's Daniel, verse 42, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember, and I will remember the land, Verse 43, the land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbaths while she lieth desolate without them 
and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because, even because, they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. You see how God's reacting? What did God say earlier? I'll abhor them. Where did it start? With them abhorring God's words. God's just reacting. He said, you, you want to you go about it like that? Then I'll let you see how it feels. Verse 44, and yet, you got to get verse 44. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to, uh, to, to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. He said back there earlier on, we read it, verse 30, my soul shall abhor you. But there he says, neither will I abhor them. It's two different kinds of, of hatred going on. God said, I'm going to be really angry. I am going to be upset. But I'm not going to be so upset that I destroy you utterly. So I'm going to punish you. And it's going to be hard and heavy and burdensome. And you're going to pine away in your iniquities. But I'm giving you a promise. I'm not going to destroy you completely and utterly. There will be something left of Israel. God had promised never to consume the sons of Jacob completely. God is never finished with Israel. Right now, he has blinded them. Romans chapter 11, blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Right now, God has turned his back on the nation, but he's not completely done with them. Do not think that the church has taken the place of Israel. Now God is done with Israel, and now the church, we get all the promises from the Old Testament. That, that's spiritual thievery. You're stealing promises from them. God promised, even though you have pushed me to my limit, I will never be so angry that I completely wipe you out. Remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and then they made the golden calf? Remember that? What did God say? Moses, the people you brought out of Egypt? I like how God did that. God brought them out of Egypt, but now that they're acting, God, God says, Moses, the people you brought out of Egypt, look at what they're doing. Stand back, let my wrath wax hot so that I can wipe them out. But what did he say? I'll start over with you. Do you see? He, he can destroy them, but not utterly. He's not going to completely wipe them out and start over with another nation. He would wipe them all out, but come down to one person. Moses, we'll just start again with you and your family and go from there. So he says in verse number 45, But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. All right, so where I'm really wanting to draw your attention is verse 43. That land has to rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. Do you see that? Every seventh year... You have to let it rest. One, two, three, four, five, six. Year seven, let it rest. You with me? And then it starts again. Okay, so let's come to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to get some dates here. Acts chapter 13. Let's get verse 20. Paul in his typical brilliant and eloquent manner, is giving a concise history of the Old Testament. 
He does it in a manner of 15 verses, tells you the story of the entire Old Testament, which is impressive, right? That's not an easy thing to do. In verse 20, he says here, and after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of, give me the time, how long? 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So when you read the book of Judges, the last judge is Samuel. So we get Joshua dying out, and then Judges chapter 2, that's where you get your first judge, Judges 2 and 3, and then all the way you get Ruth happens within the book of Judges, and then 1 Samuel, you read about Samuel, he's the last judge. So you get the timing here, 450 years, okay? And then verse 21, afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of how long? Forty years. All right? You do the math. 450 plus 40, 490. Right? Who comes next after Saul? David. David's good king. David's good king. David led the nation according to the law of the Lord. Right? Now, there's 490 years there. But let's, let's understand this. In the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel in those days. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So, was the nation living according to the Bible? Well, up and down, up and down. I mean, there would be a judge that would rise up and bring the people back to the Bible. But then after that judge died out, the people would go back to the God, uh, false gods and away from the Bible. And back and forth it went. So you have a period of 490 years here. That's mentioned, the judges plus Saul. Perhaps that's the time that we need to be thinking about. Or I'm going to give you another option. Now here, if you happen to have an edition of the Bible, and uh, guys, this is not something they wrote in the manuscripts of the Greek and the Hebrew, okay? I wish they would have. Oh, that would have been great to put dates at the top. But if you have certain editions of the Bible, depends on who published your Bible, you might have a date at the top. Okay. Again, not a verse of scripture, so don't worry if you have you know, different dates in different Bibles. But up here, you get some dates. Even my Bible doesn't have the dates. I have other Bibles at home that does. Saul took over the nation in 1096 B.C. 1096 B.C. That's King Saul. All right. Then you get Jehoiakim. He was the king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar came. All right. Again, just doing some math here. 1096. Jehoiakim takes over 606 BC. That's when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and begins to take the Jews into captivity. Do the math. 1096 minus 606. Let's see how many accountants and perhaps engineers we have in the room. 400 and? 490. So from the time you get a king until the time Nebuchadnezzar shows up to take them into captivity, there's 490 years. I would tend to think, now you can take your pick, there's 490 on the side of the judges up to the first king, and then when you start with the king up to the end of the kings, you got 490 there as well. I would tend to think that God is looking from the time they get a king, he says now, in Deuteronomy, he said, once the king is established, he has to write his own Bible. The king had to write it by hand, learn it, read it every day so that he could run the nation by the Bible. That's Deuteronomy 17. David probably did, and maybe one or two others, but by and large, the nation didn't. And the land, as far as we can read in that entire time, the land did not rest. 
So God said, okay, the land is tired. And I told you the land had to rest. So he kicks them out. How long does he kick them out? Well, every seventh year they should have rested. Do the math. 490 divided by seven, because every seventh year is let the, re- let the land rest 70 years. One year for every year you, for every time you skipped. So when Peter comes to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother till seven times? Oh, no, no, no. 70 times seven. Let him rise. You see, God's never going to ask you to do something he is not willing to do. He put up with it. But then there's a certain point when you put your foot down and go, okay, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. 490 chances, that's enough. Now get out. Let the land rest a while. And once the land had its rest, then they can come back. All right, so let's come back to Daniel chapter 9 now. God told this to Moses there in the book of Leviticus, 1450-ish B.C. And here you have 536 B.C., Daniel 9. Guys, that's what, 900 years plus minus? You just give it time. God's word... That's why Daniel said, exactly as it's written in the law of Moses, that's what's happening to us. It may not happen as fast as you think, but the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. God will come through on his word. Verse number 14, therefore, Daniel 9, 14, therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. The Lord watched, it says, upon the evil. The Lord watched these bad things, these painful, harmful things happening to his people. And because we're a mixed crowd, I'm not going to give you all the details. You can go back and read your Bible. and Read about what they were doing to each other. It was ugly. And the Lord watched upon it. It doesn't say that he liked it. But he watched it. He made sure that those evil things were happening. Because they deserved it, verse 14, for we obeyed not his voice. The Lord watched upon it. The Bible says the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will ye die, O house of Israel, he says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, Ezekiel 33. God's begging people, don't go down that path. I don't want, I don't want that particular end for you. Why will ye die, he says. Why? When you could choose another way. Listen to this verse out of the mouth of Jesus. He says unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God never predestined anybody to go to hell. Never, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hell was not made for any human being. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. That fire was never meant to have any human being go to it. But, but if you're not going to do what God told you to do, if you're not going to be born again, as Jesus said, you must be born again to see and to enter the kingdom of God. If you're not going to do that, God doesn't want to punish you. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he will. He will make sure that righteousness is exacted. He'll do that if he has to. Verse number 15, and now, O Lord our God, 
that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renown as at this day. To be renowned is to be famous. So God, he, he had great fame for bringing Israel out of Egypt, saving this, this nation. They were slaves in bondage. What are the odds of them rising up and over, overtaking one of the mightiest kingdoms, mightiest empires in the world at that time? What are the odds? And doing it the way they did it? They did not personally have to take the sword to the Egyptians. It was just plagues and plagues and then the Red Sea parted. I mean, God became famous through this. Not the Israelites. God became famous. The Israelites being any kind of uh, famous through this, that was just the aftermath, a, a consequence. God was the one who got famous for this. In verse 15, he says, We have sinned, we have done wickedly. He said, God, you were famous for saving us. Everybody knew you for bringing us out of Egypt. And now you're famous for kicking us out of our land and punishing us. God, God does not want people. He doesn't want to punish people. He doesn't, it's not like he enjoys people knowing, oh, there's that God that brings down wrath. But when he has to, if God has to bring something big to punishes people get their attention then yes people are going to know God as that kind of a God one day soon people are going to know that the Lord Jesus comes back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth stomping on the enemy that is not the end that God desired he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but one day he'll be very famous for that and that's what Daniel's pointing out Lord you became very famous for saving us and now you're famous for punishing us ultimately God is going to be vindicated ultimately God is going to be glorified but there's a choice here God would rather be glorified for his mercy than his judgment either way though God's going to get glory make no mistake even even if God says depart from me you cursed I never knew you I mean, God's going to be vindicated. He, he will be proven right in the end and thence glorified. But there's a certain way he'd rather be glorified. James chapter 2 says, mercy rejoices against judgment. God would rather have mercy. I would have mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God said, I want you to know me. I don't, wanna, I don't want to be known as the God that thumps you on the head. But if you're hard-headed... I might have to do some thumping, <laughs> right? So God's going to be glorified, but let, let's go ahead and give him the glory that he's looking for. Let's glorify God for his mercy. The Bible says in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, because he delighteth in mercy. He delights in it. He likes it when a sinner comes to him and says, God, I was wrong. I've been wrong. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to have a relationship with you. Just have mercy. God delights in that. That's what he's known for. That's what he wants to be known for. Uh, Daniel 9 and verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach 
to all that are about us. So now, let's think about this for a moment. Did God promise to bring the Jews back after 70 years? Was that the promise from, in, in the book of Jeremiah? That was the promise, right? I think three times in Jeremiah, he said, after 70 years, I'm going to punish Babylon. After 70 years, I'm going to give you an expected end. I'll bring you back to the land, right? Matter of fact, let me show you one place. Hold this and get Jeremiah chapter 29. I think we looked at this the other day, but I want to give you a few extra verses with it to, uh, this morning. You're finding Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll begin reading in verse 10. As you find it, let me remind you, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was written in approximately 720 B.C., right? 720 B.C. The book of Jeremiah, that's about 580 B.C., okay? Just so you see, there's a big difference in the, in the timing. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, the prophet names the king of Persia. He says, Cyrus will say that the city should be built and the temple should be raised up. Okay. There was no man named Cyrus then. Listen to me. There was no man named Cyrus then. He didn't exist. Nor was Persia in power over Israel at that time. Nor was the city in need of being rebuilt. Nor was the temple fallen. There was no reason to say any of that. It made no sense. Even as, as Isaiah said it, the people are standing back going, Cyrus who? King of what? Yeah, yeah, build the city. What do you mean build the city? Everything's built. There's roads, there's buildings. Build what? Yeah, let the temple be built again. Why? It's standing. But God gave us the name of the, the president of Persia, the king of Persia, and what his official proclamations would be 180 years before he said it. And spot on, that's how it happened. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra chapter 1. That is exactly what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. Breathtaking prophecy. But, but here's my point in bringing all that up. It had to happen. Israel was coming back to the land. The Jews were coming back. The temple was going to be rebuilt. God had said it. And God's going to make it good. So, here's what I want you to think about. Does Daniel even need to pray then and say, God, please do it? Isn't God going to do it? Does he need to ask? If he's already promised... Why not just say, all right, here it comes, goody, goody. <laughs> God said 70 years, time is up. All right, Lord, go ahead. Have you ever done something so bad, so bad that even though someone else has promised you, I will do this for you, you feel so bad that you go and beg anyway and go, I, I know you said you'd help, but oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I have, I have treated you so wrong. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there with the Lord? That even though you know he promised to do it, it's not that you're doubting him. You're doubting yourself. I am so unworthy of what you've promised. I know, God, your nature, you cannot deny yourself. But God, we are so messed up. We are so depraved. We are, we're ding-dongs. We are knuckleheads. We are con confusion of face. You pick your word. <laughs> what were we thinking 
God, you have every right to keep us in captivity another 70 years. Right? There was another 490, wasn't there? He said, you could keep us here another 70. You'd be fully right to do so. I know you said, right? Daniel did. He knew it from Jeremiah. I know you said 70 years. God, please, in wrath, remember mercy. I think it's completely legitimate that even though Daniel fully knows God is going to do it, to still humbly ask, please go ahead and do it, because we really don't deserve it. And, and therefore, there's no, it's not as if Daniel is doubting God's promise, maybe God wouldn't do it. He knows the prophecy is going to come to pass. But let me give you another layer to this. Watch Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Okay, it has to happen. God said it. It has to happen. Pray or not. Confess or not. Yes? Watch this. Verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me. I wonder if Daniel didn't read this and say, okay, after 70 years, it's time for us to pray. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Verse 13, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. One more verse. Verse 14, and I will be found of you saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into, this, into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. I wonder if Daniel, and I think maybe both things are true. We'll know when we see him in heaven, we'll ask. I think both things are probably true. Daniel knows we as a nation don't deserve this. So God, I, I know you said it, but please. Follow through with that. But number two, it's one thing for God to say, okay, you can come back into the, into the land. That's verse 10, right? I'll, I'll cause you to return to this place. It's one thing to be back in your land. It's another thing to have a close relationship with God. You realize that? It's one thing, listen, it's one thing to say, oh God, my life is a wreck and it's all my fault. I've been messed up in sinful behavior and I haven't been taking care of myself and I treated my family like trash and I haven't been a good employee and everything's fallen to pieces. My body is riddled with disease and it's my fault. It's because I didn't take care of myself. My wife left me, my kids hate me, it's my fault. I didn't treat them right. God, please fix my life. And God says, okay, job gets better, wife comes back, kids start to like you. That doesn't mean that you and God are tight. That's a whole other relationship. And a lot of times what we want is God bring me back into my place, but we don't want God in the place. And I think Daniel is, what he's getting at is, God, please have mercy on the city, have mercy on our people, on our country. Bring us back as a whole. Bring us back into the land. Fulfill your promise. But Daniel's wanting it a step further. God, we don't want to just show up back in the land. We want you. That's the difference. God, we, you promised you'd bring us back. But God, that's not enough for us. We want you. We need you. Come back to Daniel. I think you'll see it here. Look at verse 17. Daniel 9, 17. Now therefore, 
O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. What a great prayer that is. Lord, do this. Make your face shine. He could, God could have brought them back to the land and not made his face shine. Do you guys understand there's a difference there? They could have been right back in their temple with the same dead, shallow, superficial, oberflachet worship that they had before. You understand that? Daniel says, we don't want that anymore. Bring us back. Set us up. You've said you would. We don't deserve it. Oh, we don't, but do it. But make your face shine. We want to have something intimate and real with you. And then he says at the end of verse 17, for the Lord's sake. I want to, I want to really hammer that home a bit. Because guys, many times our prayers are not for the Lord's sake. We get down to pray and it's all about what we desire and it's for our sake. God fix things in my life, whatever that thing might be, or multi multitude of things, but it's so that I can be happy. And we've, we rarely stop and think, what's, what is God going to get out of this? What is God going to get out of this? And I'm going to put myself right there amongst the problem. We beg and beg, God fix it. And as soon as he does, we're very slow to come back with proper thanksgiving. He rarely even gets a proper thank you out of his people. Let alone when we approach it to say, God, I want you to fix it, but not primarily for me. I want you to be renowned for this. If you fix it, I will be very careful to stand up and give you the glory and the praise and say, this was, wasn't me, folks. God did this. God changed me. God saved me, my family, my job. Everything in my life got turned around. And it wasn't just to make me happy. Jesus did this in my life so that everybody could see how wonderful he is, how great he is. That's for the Lord's sake. When you get down to pray, make sure that it's for the Lord's sake. Let me show you in the New Testament how this works. Get James chapter 4. As you're finding James 4, let me continue to preach for a moment. Folks, God did not create you just for your own personal happiness. God is very interested to see you happy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he put you down here to be some mindless drone of a robot just going through the motions of life. But God knows what will bring you ultimate happiness. And it's not bunches of money in a big house and bright place and a nice car. That's not it. That's not life. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Amen. Let me say it again. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That's not what life's about. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. For Thy pleasure. If you are not living a life that is for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, to put a smile on His face, friend, you're not living, you're dying. You're not fulfilling your created purpose, and you will never be satisfied. Never. 
until His pleasure becomes your ultimate goal. In everything you do, you can wake up and go to work tomorrow, get a promotion, get a massive raise, come home. If you think that through, I got a promotion, which means I have more responsibility. I got more money, which means I'm going to pay more taxes. What is the end of all this? And one day I'm going to die. And the next generation is going to get this money that they didn't earn, and it's going to ruin them because they're going to get lazy and just spend my money. And then you're going to be right there sitting next to Solomon going, amen, brother, write it down. Vanity and vexation of spirit. Amen. Put, a, put an exclamation point right there. What's the point, right? Until putting a smile on God's face becomes your ultimate goal. That needs to be the ultimate goal of your prayers. James 4, oh boy, I get to preach and I forget to teach. James 4, verse 3, ye ask... And receive not because ye ask amiss. You did it wrong. You asked wrong. That you may consume it upon your lusts. You were asking because you wanted it. James 4, you still there? Look at verse, look at verse 14. 13, sorry. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is a vapor, even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is what? It's evil. It's a waste of time. I'm going to go to town and make a big business. And, and for what? If it's not within God's will, you're wasting your time. Verse 17, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Guys, do you realize the context of that? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. In the context, the guy's going into town to build a big business and, man, that's, for most people, that's the greatest thing you can achieve in life. And he says, but you, you know you should be praying about the will of God. You know it should be for the Lord's sake. So if you know that and you don't actively seek that, sin. It's sin. Come to John chapter 14. We've got to move quick. Wanted to give you guys more time in the sunshine this morning for fellowship. John 14 verse 13. <clears throat> Let's just underscore this. John 14 13. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. <clears throat> that the Father may be what? Glorified, Glorified in the Son. Why aren't my prayers getting answered? Just check and see, are they for the Lord's sake? What is God going to get out of this? I come back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let me just give you, we're going to finish up on these last couple of verses in this um, passage here. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. Those verses always blow my mind. O oh my God, incline thine ear. Do you, you realize the posture of God involved in this, incline that God lean over and listen. And you can read in the book of Psalms where it says that God does that. God inclines his ear towards us. That, that, that posture right there says, I want to hear. Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. God, he's saying, take a look at us. We're a mess. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. 
God, we're not telling you, look, look at this wonderful life that we've built. Look at how great we are. Look at how much we've done for ourselves. You see, God, you know, we know God. You bless those that bless themselves. You, you help those that help themselves. That's the exact opposite. He's saying, God, look at this horrible, stinky mess we made. Can you please step in and do something about this? And it's not, we're not asking because you owe us anything. You owe us further destruction, but for your great mercies, not mercies, great mercies, great, because we need big ones, we need a lot of mercies, and we'll finish in verse 19, oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive, do you hear the desperation, oh Lord, hearken and do, listen God, defer not for thine own sake, huh, not not for our sake, for thine own sake, oh my God, For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. God, do this not for us. Do it for your name. Because we're making you look bad. Your name is connected to us. Everywhere we go, people say, oh, those, those are the people of Jehovah. Those are God's people. And look at how they're acting. If we had time, I, maybe next week I'll give them to you. There's a couple verses in Ezekiel where God said, I'm going to kick you out of the land so that you quit using my holy name that way. <laughs> I've told this to people before. I've met them, you know, they're doing something that they know is wrong. And you try to witness to them or you say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, listen, I, I always just get quiet with them for a moment. If you're a Christian, don't tell anybody because you're making us look bad. And, and I get that from the book of Ezekiel. I get that from these kind of passages. God, fix us so that you don't look so bad because we've made you look bad. Amen. All right, let's all stand. Father, help us, Lord. We want to make your name look as holy as it ought to be, as it ought to look. Lord, we want to magnify your word above your name. We, we want to live according to this book. And we ask that you please bless our service to come, not just so that we can walk away saying that we had a good service and we had a lot of people in the church. Lord, we want to come away meet, having met with you and spent time in your presence. Father, we want you to smile on what is said and done and decided upon here today. Bless the fellowship now in Jesus' name. Amen.